0: Welcome to the latest episode of No Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No Till Farmer. Newleaf Symbiotic sponsors this program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher and tune In Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Want to do more with your fields in 2022? Now available in convenient Planner box application Terrasim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn, and that's $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your return on investment for the 2022 growing season and purchase Terrasim directly online for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleaf, com, backslash, 2022. Regular listeners to our podcast know 2022 is a big year for no-till history. The first no-till farm field was planted near Herndon, Kentucky in 1962. No-till Farmer was founded in 1972 the first National No-Tillage Conference was held in 1982, but no-till farming doesn't just belong to the past. It's an important part of agriculture's present and future. Back in 2019, Frank and Mike Lessener sat down to discuss 25 legends of the no-till movement who are still alive today. We'll revisit that conversation in celebration of these three anniversaries and the ongoing no-till movement. But first, a couple notes. At one point in the podcast, you'll hear Frank and Mike talk about David Hula's record-breaking corn yields in the National Corn Growers Association Yield Contest. After this podcast was initially recorded, Hula broke his own record, which now stands at 616 bushels per acre. That's a lot of corn. Frank was also working on his book, From Maverick to Mainstream, A History of No-Till Farming, at the time this podcast was recorded it's finished. I have one on my desk. You can have one on your desk too. Check out notillfarmer.com for more details. That's no-tillfarmer.com. Now here's Mike.
1: So now I'm going to introduce all you listeners to Frank Lesseter. Frank has been the editor-in-chief of No-Till Farmer since 1972. That's four and a half decades of covering no-till. Frank is my dad and the co-founder of Lesseter Media, put out the shingle with my mom, Pam, in 1981, and you're going to hear from him, unscripted in his own voice, in his own office, and uh, really think you're going to enjoy what we have planned for you today. Frank, say hi to all of our listeners out there. Hello,
2: how are you doing today? When they talk about me being around and being editor of no-till farmer since 1972, I guess I relate to farmers because most people, the desk jobs seem to move on to better positions over the years. Me, I've been stuck in this same job for more than 40 years. So I guess I'm kind of like farmers in that regard.
1: That, That chair is fit you well, Frank. Tell us what you're going to cover here today in the podcast.
2: Well, we had the uh, 25th anniversary of the National No-Tillage Conference um, last winter, and we picked 25 no-till living legends that played a key role in the no-till adoption. And I'm going to talk to you about each one of these today. And during this time, from 1972 to today, we've seen no-till go from about 3.3 million acres to probably around 100 million acres today. So over the last 40 years, these people have really contributed to the in in the number of
1: no-tilled acres. And you have an exciting book project that you're working on as well?
2: Yeah, I've been working on it for years and this will be a culmination of four decades of reporting on the no-till farming practice. Actually, it's gonna be a coffee type book, more than 200 pages that will reflect on the pioneering advancements, both in technology and in people. And the people we're gonna to talk to about today will be in the book. And these are folks who have changed the lives of so many farmers and their families. The attendees at the National No-Tillage Conference last year in St. Louis got a small taste of the history because we had some museum displays that we had at the 25th annual conference. And many people have encouraged us to tell me how happy they were and to see this book being written and memorizing the place no-till has had in the ag revolution. So I got to get, get
1: it done. It's fun to watch Frank in the office here. Uh, many of you have, have heard others refer to him as the Johnny Appleseed of no-till agriculture because the, so much of the early information was passed through the publications and meetings that he was hosting. But this is a, a passion project, and Frank is f- finding something out of the archives every week, it seems, that this book project is growing, but uh, will really be something special when it's finished. Reminds me of the, we were just talking about this quote, Isaac Newton, who said, if I have seen farther, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And uh, that was kind of the impetus for this book, right? To honor, honor the past, the pioneers, risk takers, some of those things that, that caused you to want to uh, put this together.
2: Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of the history of no-till. I can remember back when no-tillers said they were afraid to go to the cafe for coffee in the morning in their small towns because everybody ri- ridiculed them and laughed at them.
1: So what you're doing here is making certain that the next generation knows whose shoulders they're standing on today. Exactly. And these 25 legends are a combination of educators,
2: researchers, and farmers from, I think, 15 states they hail from.
1: Excellent. Well, we should probably get that underway. Just a couple ground rules for how we're going to do this here for you, so you know how we're approaching it. We're we're just going to let the mic roll today, and uh, going to mention each of Frank's 25 selections and let them loose. And uh, as his son and business partner, I'm going to tell you there's probably going to be some tangents, some rabbit holes, and uh, some entertainment here as well. And we're just going to let the mics roll. Um, We can always edit something out if he takes us down a rabbit hole that we can't get out of, Uh, but we're going to let things roll and let him uh, share what he sees and remembers and uh, excited to get this started. So you ready to go? Ready to go. All right. Tell us about Dwayne Beck.
2: Well, these 25 we're going to talk about not only are legends, but they're pioneers. And uh, early in my career, I spent a couple of years working at Michigan State University on the information staff, so I know how these universities run. Well, Dwayne is a South Dakota State University agronomist, but he's kind of a guy that doesn't really, to me, doesn't fit in with the regular university setup. He's blunt, he's funny, he tells you what's on his mind, and he's, when he thinks of research, he thinks of uh, practical ideas. So years ago, he moved to Pierre, South Dakota, and became the director of the farmer-supported and financed Dakota Lakes Research Farm. And these are a number of farmers who said, look, we want, we want to look at no-till in our area out here in western South Dakota. We don't care what you do, Dwayne, as long as you make money. We don't want to go in the hole. So Dwayne's been out there for years. He's turned out some of the most practical research you'll see on no-till. He's a big believer in getting a number of crops into the no-till rotations. One of the things I remember about him is I had him as a speaker at the very first National No-Tillage Conference in Indianapolis in 1993. And Dwayne got up and said, this is in the eastern Corn Belt. And he says, we live in the western Corn Belt, and we no-till to keep every inch of rain that falls and turn it into a crop. He says, you guys in the eastern no-till, or eastern region of the country, the Corn Belt, you no-till know, to get rid of the water, and I've always remembered that for 25 years. He's very practical, got some great ideas. He's traveled the world, been a disciple for no-till all these years. He's
1: he's can be pretty much a polarizing figure in, in agriculture, can he?
2: Yes, and if you ask him a question, you're going to get a, a honest, blunt answer about no-till. If he thinks you're going to try something that won't work, he'll tell you.
1: He's one of the, the fun ones to have on our conference, uh, never disappoints there, and people, half the rooms are green and half is uh Exactly. Right. Next one, tell us about uh, Jill Clapperton out in Washington.
2: Well, she originally started at Lethbridge, uh, Alberta. She worked for Ag- Canada. was a microbiologist. She's probably the one who's done the best job of looking at the living creatures underneath the soil surface. She's done remarkable things. She's talked around the world on no-till, and now she lives in Spokane, uh, Washington, running her own company. She calls herself a soil ecologist, looks at the relationships between orgasms and their environment to more effectively manage and benefit from the long-term biological and fertility of our soils. Another practical person, I've seen her uh, be on our um, program at the National No-Tillage Conference. And I remember one time later in Indianapolis, after she had finished an hour later out in the hallway, there were still 15 or 20 people out there asking their questions.
1: She's been uh, highlighted at the meetings as well. Going back a little farther here, tell us about Bill Richards.
2: Well, Bill Richards uh, in Southern um, Ohio, I first visited his farm, I think, in 1973. He and his sons have a huge operation, been no-till all these years. Uh, was one of the real pioneers early on in uh, traffic control and running your wheels in the same uh, same place in the field every year. And uh, they, they went to a program that was set up with 20-inch corn. They were no-tilling 31 rows. When And this was in time when narrow rows to most farmers meant 30 inches, but he was in 20 inches. He uh, later let the, I think maybe the the boys said to him, let us do the farming. And Bill went to uh, Washington, D.C. and was uh, chief of the Soil Conservation Service for several years before he came back. Been a real pioneer in this business. I always thought maybe he made a mistake, but he didn't agree with me because when he was uh chief of the soil conservation service. We had some real um, soil erosion problems in this country. And I always thought they should have slapped a couple of these guys with some fines and put them in jail and uh, made some progress on this. But uh, Bill and the politicians in Washington were uh, not as blunt as I would have been.
1: Very good. Let's talk about John Ashelman, a guy that we uh, visited his farm a couple years ago. Well, John and his son run about 4,000
2: uh, acres in the Palouse area. If you ever been to the Palouse area, it's rolling hills, steep uh, hills. Uh, sometimes you can walk up one of these hills and you can think you're practically going to fall off. They do winter wheat, spring wheat, spring barley, and 7 uh, seven and a half inch uh, paired rows. And they also no-till corn, peas, sunflowers, gabonzo beans, and they're looking at cover crops. Uh, John normally wins or has for a number of years won the no-till yield contest in Washington with no-till corn. Sometimes I think he's been the only entrant, but he's done very well. But he's done a great job of uh, no-tilling these eastern Washington hills that can, uh, they're among the steepest in the whole country and they can erode. I I've seen pictures of where there would not, not on John's farm, but other area farms in the area, where there would be as much as 18 inches of topsoil to come down off these hills in the rain sitting in the middle of a highway. and the county highway, people got to get out and scrape the topsoil off the roads. Tell them uh, about,
1: tell our listeners about some of the combine experience you you had out there when we were there a couple years ago and what what exactly that terrain is like.
2: Well, it's really rough. we We were there at harvest time in August. Mike and I we rode with several of these people, and uh, it, it, it's it's crazy. It's like being on a roller coaster on anyway. and they they just worked with it. We were on another farm in Idaho in which we were going across along a, a ravine, and you look down to the right on the ravine, and it was a six hundred foot drop. And we got the header on this combine, probably they're they're no towing within eighteen inches of going over that cliff.
1: Yeah, that was I remember that was some thrill seeking in the combine it had or uh feet on the glass windshield there in some spots as you yeah. were dealing with the, the terrain.
2: John's been no towing since the mid nineteen seventies and one of the things interesting things he's doing now is he's got he's gone through a number of drills over the years, but he's running a cross slot drill that's the technology that John Baker came up with in New Zealand, and that's coming. it's getting a little more popular. And interesting enough, for 2018, they're going to do some tests with cross-slot planters in the Midwest on uh, no-tilling corn and soybeans at Western Illinois University.
1: We'll come back to the Midwest here for a moment. Tell us about David Brandt.
2: Well, David Brandt is uh began farming in 1971, an ex-Marine. He's uh, seeded numerous cover crops. He runs about 1,150 acres of corn, soybeans, and wheat. No no huge operation, but he's been no-till for a long time. Uh, if you ever see uh, Dave out on the farm, he's always got a pair of bib overalls on. He's uh, seen the tremendous value of seeding cover crops and improving health. He's been a speaker at a couple of our national no-tillage conferences. Um, is in demand for other places across the country, and kind of pioneered some of the work on um, cover crops. Early on, he had a white planter, and then you get, and uh, he would he would get blank seed plates, and he would drill them, drill the holes in them for the exact seeds that he was planting in his cover crop mixtures. He's big on mixtures. He'll have a half dozen or more different species of cover crops he puts out in one mixture.
1: He had some of the most uh, interesting and uh, eye-opening presentations on things like tillage radishes early on, didn't he?
2: Right. He, he's done a number, a number of things like this. And uh, he's looked at seeding some of these things all by themselves and then putting them in mixes as maybe as many as a dozen species in one
1: mixture. Very good. Let's go on to, uh, let's go to John Bradley from Tennessee.
2: Well, John was, he's kind of retired now, but he was a University of Tennessee uh, agronomist. He was at Milan, Tennessee, ran the Milan, Tennessee uh, no-till field day for a number of years. And that attended, attracted tens of thousands of growers to see the most innovations and no-till research. You would get on wagons and they would have a tour Later on, he went to work for Monsanto, and uh, in the south helped uh, pioneer no-till in that area, and he was one of the pioneers of no-till cotton, which is not something we think about much up here in the Midwest, but he really got it going. He showed them how they could do large payoffs, and then he worked later with with, uh, Tennessee Agri Center for a while, now he's retired in Lutz, Tennessee, and he and his wife are running a small herd of beef cattle, but. Another guy who was really practical and close to farmers, and another guy like Dwayne Beck that probably excelled because he wasn't on the main campus of the university.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, Jim Kinsella out of Illinois next. Well, Jim's been a long-time no-till and strip-till enthusiast. He
2: was no-till for a number of years. He worked with BASF for a number of years and uh, got going with some of their programs of soybeans, I remember Darryl Smith from Farm Journal telling me once he was riding with Dwayne and all of a sudden comes to a abrupt stop right in the middle of the road, jumps out of the pickup and starts picking up earthworms out on the middle of the highway and throwing them back in his no-till fields. And he also told me, Daryl also told me once that he caught bloody hell from Jim because he was about to drive across one of his no-till fields and Daryl's pickup truck, and Daryl, uh, uh, Jim put a stop to it. So he's really been big on the conservation. He and his son uh, run about 2,200 acres. They no-till stru- soybeans and strip-till corn. He's been a speaker at several of the no-till um, conferences. Early on, he put together uh, a big machine shed on the farm down there, and he used to run, uh, probably still does, used to run tours during the winter and then field days during the summer, but he would draw 200, 300 people to these meetings in the middle of the winter on how to set your no-till planter. A big booster of no-till over the years. I remember once being on one of his summer field days and riding a bus. And when, it wasn't Jim, but it was one of the guys he works with, was talking about this, the erosion in this field out there and how they had a slope. And one of the guys in the middle, in the back of the bus said, hey, where's the slope? I don't see the slope. And the guy said, well, there is a 1% slope in this field. I mean, this is 1% when we were talking about John Ashelman out in the Palouse area, they're talking 45, 50% slope. So here's Jim was concerned about the soil loss off a 1% slope.
1: He's a name that uh, when we're at meetings and ask people how they got into no-till or who influenced them, you, you hear that name quite often, don't you?
2: Yeah, he had, I mean, the, with, with these field days and winter meetings, he, uh, would go, go through the program. He had really practical advice and, uh, farmers, it was another farmer that farmers could listen to and
1: grow on what they did. Let's, um, let's talk about Howard Martin out of Kentucky.
2: Well, Howard started no-tilling in desperation. He, uh, had some really poor quality land. He wasn't doing anything with it. And, uh, no till, Howard will tell you that uh, no till saved his farming career, and then he got to where he wasn't happy with uh, some of the attachments that were being made for planters, and he formed Martin Industries and developed road cleaners, fertilizer openers, closing wheels, everything. And he's gone from a humble one person operation to a company that now has more than 40 employees and uh, you'll see his attachments on a lot of uh, equipment that's added on the planters, and that some's coming out of the manufacturer's plants with it on there. Very humble and capable guy. He was a great friend of Eugene Keaton, who passed away in the last year or so, and Eugene was the one that came up with the Keaton Seed Firmers, and uh, together they used to get together and scratch heads and see what needed to be developed in this field, and we're real leaders in this field. He's at Elkton, Kentucky, which is in western Kentucky.
1: And you, you just mentioned, uh, Keaton, you guys went out there and visited with uh, on the farms and got those two together to exchange stories here for a project a couple of years ago. That was really pretty cool. We should dust that one off as well.
2: We did. It was a great conversation. The two of them were sitting together in Eugene's uh, nice home in uh, you could see that the idea of the Keaton Seed Firmers was a good idea because Eugene and his wife had a great-looking home on, on one of the rivers in Tennessee. But there were there were some real thinkers in that room that day, those two guys, and came up with some real ideas that uh, really paid off. And Eugene also came up with a number of other inventions. I think there's some things on the Kinsey planter and on the John Deere planters that were uh, Eugene's investments. So he was getting royalties not only— off the uh, Keaton Seed firmer that Precision Planning had, but also off uh, royalties from Kinsey and John Deere. Probably some others I don't know about.
1: Let's go back to the um, the educational world here for a moment with Paul Yassa out of Nebraska. Well, Paul's
2: been around for years. Uh, he did his master's degree, on I think, on planter attachments and... Uh, stayed on at Nebraska, has got some plots that have been out there more than 20, uh, 35 years of continuous no-till research. He needs help producers uh, recognize the value of a total systems approach. That means having a long-term plan, not just thinking of one year. He's an, ag, he's what, they got some fancy title now, but basically he's an ag engineer at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. The thing about Paul is, is he can't he he loves the total no-till program. He is a purist. He's, he wants one program. Now, when people start going off and doing strip till or vertical till or something else, man, that doesn't fit in what he believes. He's a purist and says, you got to leave that uh, soil lo- alone. But he's been big with farmers on making adjustments on no-till planters, drills, air seeders, uh, Make sure you're getting through the residue properly, and getting uniform seed depths, so and getting that all important seed to soil contact.
1: Yeah, next, uh, let's go back out uh, out west and talk for a moment about John McNabb. Well, John McNabb is very interesting. Uh,
2: one of the things I remember about him, he's in the southern Idaho and northern Utah, and uh, he is, he and his sons run an operation. There have been years where they had as many as 43,000 acres of no-till. They don't no-till that much anymore, but he, at one time early on, he was renting a lot of land at low cost from the Indian tribes out there until they caught on and figured out how much money he was making and rented it to some others. He was at our first no-till conference, and my, my wife Pam and I and Alice Musser On a Sunday night, we're sitting in a restaurant. I think it was in Indianapolis. Well, anyway, we didn't know John at the time, but as it turned out, he was sitting in the the restaurant at a table, and it looked like he was having supper with a bum. Guy wasn't very well-dressed or anything, and it turned out that John had found a homeless guy on the street and had brought him in and bought him dinner and had a conversation with. That's just the kind of Christian guy that John was, and he cared about other people. But I always remember that from the very first year. I also remember uh, talking to Guy Swanson, who had the exactrix program now, and they had the big yielder drills that were huge. And John ran two or three of these when he had 43,000 acres. And I remember Guy telling me that he went to visit John once, this was in late May, it was getting close to Memorial Day, and they were on land that was so steep that when he and John talked, they set, stood there and leaned against the yielder drill and looked down below 200, 300, 400 feet, where people were skiing on the hills. And there, there, there's snow there, and John's up on this mountain, no tilling probably spring wheat or barley.
1: That's a great story about uh, John bringing in uh, the dinner guest there. I hadn't, hadn't heard that one before.
2: Yeah, and John is a guy who believes that no-till has been worth an extra 35 to $40 per acre. So if it's worth $40 per acre, multiply that by the year he had 43,000 acres, and you'll see how no-till paid off.
1: Well, that's a good segue here into uh, one of our other living legends from that area. I mentioned him a moment ago. Let's Let's talk more about Guy Swanson. Guy's dad came up with the idea for these uh, yielder drills, and I remember uh,
2: before we bought we, I've been no editor of No Till since 1972, but my wife and I didn't buy it until 1981. But I worked for another company, so in that days it was uh, a company who also had a magazine called Farm Wife News, and they took the they took people to Hawaii in the winter. I I've been on trips to Hawaii with them when we had 1,200 farmers and their wives with us. So guys. Uh, dad Mort went on one of these trips with us and I first met him by maybe 1974 that's how I got introdu- introduced to him but Guy worked with him early then Guy had a career with Caterpillar and they came back and they did really specialized equipment I think Mort built a sprayer that he put out with a, a Caterpillar tractor at one time it was maybe 160 feet wide to work on these hills in the Palouse and they had a they had a farmer their own out there and they still do but um He had developed a system, and then Guy has got into where he's got the exact system that's really involved in effective nitrogen management.
0: That was Frank and Mike Lesseter talking about 25 living legends of no-till agriculture. Before we get back to the conversation, a brief word from today's sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotic. Want to do more with your fields in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, Kerasym by New Leaf Symbiotics, is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn. And that's $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your return on investment for the 2022 growing season and purchase TerraSIM directly online for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com backslash 2022. Now here's Frank and Mike again.
1: Frank, why don't we uh we keep going with the with the program here? And uh first up on the on the list is a name down from uh, the deep south. Tell us about Grover Triplett.
2: Well, it's interesting. He's uh retired now, he's at Starkville, Mississippi, still works with the Mississippi State University. But he his really claim to fame was at Ohio State University. He was, he was at Wooster, Ohio at the experiment station. And he pioneered some of the early work on no-till, and particularly in the weed area, in the early 1960s. And he also started the longest ongoing no-till research in the world there at Worcester, Ohio. And they've been going for more than 55 years. It's been more than 75 scientific papers on no-till that have come out of those plots. He retired from... Ohio State a number of years ago, and then he moved back home. He's from southern uh, Mississippi, and he moved to Starkville, and has been uh, still a part-time researcher there. One of the funny stories I remember about him is um, he's from down south. He has an accent, and uh, it was I was at field day one year, and Jimmy Carter had just been elected president, and I said to Glover, so what do, what do you think of having one of your own people from the south in the White House? And he said to me, Well, for the first time in my lifetime, we have a president who doesn't have an accent. (laughs) But he's he's really pioneered some of the work. One of the very first uh, research papers ever done on no-till, Gulver and a couple other people from Ohio State authored. Very
1: good. Our next one, I believe he was a speaker on the very first no-till conference 25 years ago, Ray McCormick out of Vincennes, Indiana.
2: Yep, he's been uh, no-tilling for probably 30 uh, years or more, runs a 32-acre operation, and he believes nothing pays bigger dividends than uh, conservation. And he talks diversification. It means no-tilling corn, no-tilling wheat, no-tilling both full-season and double-crop soybeans and cover crops. And then he's got about a 1,000 acres of woodlands and wetlands for hunters who pay him to come hunt waterfowl and white-tailed deer. And he also raises peaches, and uh, he recognizes the nutrient and soil protection value of keeping the residue on the surface. I've asked him a number of times whether he would sell the residue to an ethanol plant, and he says, absolutely not. And I said, So what if the uh, price got to where they would pay $100 per acre for the residue? And he says, nope, I still wouldn't sell sell it because it has more benefits than leaving it on the field. A few years back, he pioneered an idea for seeding cover crops. He uh, took a Gandy unit and mounted it on his combine, and he's he's seeding cover crops as he's harvesting corn and soybeans in the fall.
1: Next, let's talk about uh, Barry Fisher out of Indiana.
2: Well, Barry Fisher was one of the uh, worked for the Soil Conservation Service. Uh, that shows how old I am, because now it's called NRCS. But uh, he's he, today he's original health soil health manager for them. Uh, he had a fa- has a farm of his own in uh, Eastern Indiana, but he's devoted much of his career to encouraging use of no-till and cover crops. He's one of these guys that saw the value of no-till and cover crops and promoted them from the start while other people were not doing it for political reasons or thinking we still had to put in grass waterways or terraces. One year he won, he won a, um, a Rotary Herald that was popular in no-till in those days. Was really excited about it because he took it all over Indiana for the year that he had it and showed, helped him uh, get people um, going with no-till. But he's been a great promoter of it A great speaker. He's talked at a number of our no-till conferences and uh, talks about no-till across the country.
1: Let's uh, let's go back east here to uh, Pennsylvania and talk about uh, Steve Graff and what he's done with no-till here. Well,
2: well, Steve Graff is at a town called Holtwood, uh, Pennsylvania, and... Most people know him for what he's done on cover crops and tillage radishes in the last decade or so. But he's also no-tilled sweet corn, pumpkins, tomatoes, corn, alfalfa, soybeans, wheat, and uh, a number of uh, cover crops. Been no-tilling for 36 years, really pioneered the use of cover crops. But one of the other interesting things he's done is uh, he's shown how you could plant uh, short-maturity corns, maybe 85, 90 days, and then that gets you an opportunity to come in and seed cover crops earlier in the year. And he's showing the dollar and cent value of uh, making it pay even for the shorter maturity corn. He's had great yields and uh, the cover crops is made up for the benefits of it too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's giving a special workshop on our National Strip-Till Conference on cover crops here coming up here shortly. Next, let's talk about Jeff Martin out of Mount Pulaski, Illinois, another name that uh, is frequently cited when asked people for influences in their no-till career.
2: Well, that's in central Illinois, and he's been no-tilling since 82, Farms With His Son, and uh, they do about 5,000 acres. He's been on strip-tilling continuous corn for 16 years. Uh, they have yields of over 250 bushel per acre. And uh, they've done really well. A couple things about Jeff is years ago, there was a national corn champ out of Iowa. I can't think of his name offhand, but he was a conventional tillage guy. And Jeff paid a great deal of attention to them. And will tell you that he learned a, a great deal off what this guy was doing to get high yields that Jeff realized he could use in no-till and strip-till. In fact, one year we had him talk at the no-till conference on, I think it was the 10 best ideas you can learn from a national corn champ that was using conventional tillage. The other thing he's done is he's, uh, he's really promoted the use of no-till among absentee landowners. He's been president of a club in Chicago called the Chicago Farmers Club, which basically talks about agriculture to uh, city slickers that own land down um, south, south in Illinois and other states but he's really sold the benefits of no-till. And with 5,000 acres, they're they're renting most of this land. And I I think they do a great job with their landlords of showing them the value of no-till and why they ought to continue renting land to them.
1: For our next one, we'll we'll go north to a a, a farm that uh, I got to know as a a young kid. And I know you've said to me that was responsible for some really out of the box uh, thinking that you were checking on regularly up in Michigan. Tell us about Ray Rawson. Well he's kind of the father of of zone
2: tillage and uh, that's that's pretty much a system where they were running two colders and one in the center, so they had a three colder set up on their planters. And he and his sons pioneered this. Uh, Ray came up with a couple inventions that he uh, used with a couple companies and they manufactured and he was in the hot demand years ago as a speaker at many no-till conferences. And he's he's worked one-on-one with a lot of growers on zone tillage. They had a farm shop, and there were a lot of great ideas that used to come out of there. My wife's family had a uh, cottage maybe 20 miles from Ray Rawson's. So in the uh, 70s and 80s, I would always go over while we were up there on vacation and spend at least a half day with Ray and seeing what he was doing. And the unusual thing that he did is this would be in July or August, and he would have sold the no-till planter that he used that year, that he finished up using in April and May, and he would sell it. And he would sell it immediately, and then he would create a new planter that he was going to use the following year, and they'd build it in their shop during the summer and during the winter. But for a number of years, he always had a new planter, and it always had new innovations on it. And I, I would go over there every year to see what he was doing. One year, I remember, he took me to a field probably in July and the soybeans were just looking fantastic. And this is a field that he had rented for the first time. It had been a terrible eroded field, compacted, everything. Yields on it were horrible. And later Ray told me he got something like 85 bushel soybeans off that field by no-tilling it the very first year that he farmed it. Hmm. And he and his sons, uh, they came up with some sprayer ideas. They were marketing sprayers for a while. And I haven't talked to him in a few years, but I know that they're farming um, a huge acreage in mid-Michigan and even farther south. And then a few years ago, he got the idea that uh, there were city people looking for places to build cabins and get away for the weekend. And he and his sons uh, came up with a project, some of their woodlands. They've been selling off lots and building. Actually, the, the, the crew and raised crew has been building these cottages and selling them to people out of Lansing and Detroit and Flint and other cities.
1: Move on here to an uh, influential person on the, on the university side who helped spread the word on, on no-tills. Talk about uh, Dan Towery out of Lafayette, Indiana.
2: Well, Dan was originally from um, mid-Illinois and worked for NRCS for a number of years. And then he went to the Conservation Technology Information Center and worked on it for years with no-till and many other things. And later on, he left there and became a uh, consultant on his own. He's still a big believer in no-till and cover crops to increase profits while protecting the environment. He's Played a critical role in the expansion of cover crops across the nation, especially within the no-till ranks. I can tell you a story about Dan. He, We had him on our program one year at the National No-Till Conference, and I kept calling him up and begging him to write a few paragraphs on what he was going to talk about at the conference. And Don, or Dan was very busy and didn't get it done, so I wrote it for him. And he he didn't like what I wrote, but you know what? He was never late with another one after that.
1: (laughs) Good story. Good story. Let's talk about Gabe Brown out of North Dakota next.
2: Well, Gabe is a guy. They got about 5,000 acres. They're integrating no-till and grazing. They got a um, beef cattle herd. They're doing cash crops, multi-species cover crops. And uh, they've they've run beef, poultry, and sheep on the land and uh, extensively on many ideas of no-till and cover crops. He kind of has a holistic approach to the uh, what's going on. He's doing this with, I think, some, he's got some fields that don't get any fertilizer, any herbicides, any insecticides or fungicides. So he's really showing how a total systems approach can work for himself and his sons.
1: Let's uh, let's talk about Phil Needham. Uh, uh, the voice, if you've heard him talk, uh, sounds different than, than much of the people who speak about no-till here.
2: Phil came from England uh, a long time ago and uh, was hired over here to bring the British system of high yielding wheat production to the Midwest. And he worked on that project, soon learned about some of the, how no-till could work. He was was in uh, Kentucky. In fact, he lives in Calhoun, Kentucky, but he worked for one of the big crop suppliers on uh, intensive wheat production, but he saw what no-till could do, saw some of its drawbacks, and due to a lack of equipment modifications. And he launched later launched Needham Ag Technologies. He still works as a consultant for a number of farmers, but he also sells some uh, equipment around the world that deals with no-till and some of the attachments for sprayers and uh, drills. He's seen numerous equipment design modifications over the years. And one of the things he's really done is he's gone and yelled, kind of yelled at the manufacturers to do a better job with some of their equipment. And one of the things he really pushes is we need combines that got spreaders that will spread the residue the full width of the combine instead of putting it in a windrow. So he's he's had a major contribution to no-till.
1: I had seen at a farm equipment dealer meeting uh, last winter, I talked to the folks at H&R AgriPower, big uh, dealer group that's in that area, and said that he was influential in spreading uh, the gospel, the solutions out there on what no-till could do in that area and they they used him considerably to help get the word out.
2: And one of the things he's really done is he's shown the value of uh, wheat or barley, particularly wheat, in a no-till double crop soybean situation where you can get two crops off that field in the same year. Tell us about Joe Nestor out of Ohio next. Well Joe is a crop consultant at Bryan Ohio and he's worked with no-tillers in Northwestern Ohio for a long time. And he showed them immediately how they could earn an extra 40 to $50 per acre with no-till. He's uh, worked with it. He's been working with it since the late 1980s. And uh, at one time, he bought 10 of the John Deere 750 drills and rented them out to farmers. I mean, 10 of them he bought. And within a few years, he had most of his crop consulting clients switched from 100% conventionally tilled soybeans to nearly 100% no-till soybeans. He's also worked on some of the algae concerns in Lake Erie due to the over-application of phosphorus. He's been a trendsetter in helping no-tillers reduce their costs and uh, been big on nutrient runoff. He's um, getting a little older, and he's cut back a little, but now he's doing some things of real interest to him, and that includes a few projects on uh, no-till fertility and other things that can help farmers make more money. Mm -hmm.
1: Let's uh, go to our... No-till champion, David Hula. Talk about what he's done and how his innovations and the publicity has helped no-till.
2: Well David is down at Charles City, uh, Virginia and he's got some land down there that's been farmed for probably 300, 400 years. uh, This is kind of where America got started down there, but it also is on the river that moves into Chesapeake Bay. He's shown you can turn out good yields with no-till. He holds the record breaking corn yield in the National Corn Growers Association contest, 532 bushels per acre, and that's the highest yield ever reported in the contest. He's doing it on no till irrigated ground, but he also does some no till dry land ground, that does it does that. But he'll he'll be in the top five every year. It seems like in the national no-till or in the national corn growers contest. But he looks at that crop practically every day. If he sees something that's not right, they do something immediately, whether it's micronutrients or another inch of water or uh, putting on some fungicides for disease. But been a speaker, and uh, he gets a lot of credit for what's being done with his no-till corn.
1: But he's also done really well with uh, no till wheat. Let's move on next to Roy Applequist, who founded Great Plains Manufacturing and the, the role that he had in no till.
2: Well, it was in in the early days, in the early 80s, the major manufacturers, Deer, Case, IH, New Holland, some of the Agco brands at that time, weren't very excited about no till because they wanted to sell big iron, they wanted to sell big horsepower tractors. They wanted to sell mobile plows, 40-foot discs. And Roy was among a number of the short-line companies. Actually, he's at Great Plains Manufacturing, I should say, in Salina, Kansas. But he saw the need for designing equipment specifically for the no-till market. And they were an active participant in uh, Tennessee's and no-till field days that John Bradley had started there. And uh, he, along with a few other drill manufacturers, introduced some uh, narrow-row prototype drills that had been designed specifically for no-till conditions, and they would take them down there, get farmers to look at them, see what they would think. Roy would tell me that that field day was always held in uh, late July, it was hot, and uh, said manufacturers would end up talking to each other in the swimming pool at night and having a few (laughs) beers to go along and talk about what they learned. But Great Plains has been a real player in the no-till market. They got in early with their drills. They're uh, one of the few companies that have promoted no-till twin rows. They've done very well and uh, adopted their drills for small grains and cover crops to fit the no-till market.
1: It had been shared with me that not only was there the influential in the designs and technology enhancements, but funding a lot of the, the meetings and the road shows to try to get the word out to, to farmers so that they could consider this maverick practice in their own area.
2: Yeah, and I think Roy, for a number of years, the way he traveled was with a pickup truck pulling a no-till drill behind it to show at these meetings. Let's, uh, let's talk about Mike Plummer. Well, Mike was another university guy who probably did well because he wasn't at the headquarters for the university. He was in uh, southern Illinois, now lives at Creel Springs. He's been a big booster of both cover crops and no-till, was an extension educator for a number of years in southern uh, Illinois, really has promoted no-till and cover crops, and he's used them on his own farm. And uh, after retiring as a university educator, he's continued to work with growers and suppliers on finding new cover crop solutions, making more effective use of no-till and improving soil health. I think if you travel with Mike, pretty much you're going to have a shovel in your hands because he's going to dig into practically every no-till field he gets into to see what's going on underneath the surface.
1: So I've done my math right here and keeping track of it. We're That's 24. We're looking at uh, number 25 here. Why don't you tell us about Marion Calmer um, and what he's done next. Marion uh, is at Alpha, Illinois, which is in western
2: uh, Illinois. He gets a lot of credit for coming up with the corn heads to do 15 and 20 inch rows and he deserves the credit for this. Uh, he had a farm shop down there in his bar- barn, and he just came up with an idea for uh, coming up with a better corn head design than the major manufacturers could come up with. But he got started early on um, with on-farm research, and and we've had him speak at a number of our no-till conferences. I think the only one he's ever missed was the very first one, and I think it's because he didn't know about it. But he's done field-size research uh, Plots run the entire length of a field. He's done a lot of great work, not only on fertilization but weed control, but mainly on uh, corn and soybean populations. Now we got a lot of people out there for years that were planting as many as two hundred and twenty thousand soybean seeds per acre in uh, seven and a half inch rows. And Marion has got down to where he he can show, he's got research on his own farm that shows you can drop that population to maybe sixty thousand seeds per acre and get the same yields. Now, a few years ago when he first came out with this, I said to him, so are you doing the whole farm this coming year? In 60,000. He said, no, I'm chicken to do it off just one or two years of uh, research. And But I think even then he had cut it back to 120,000 or so. And I think he's kept coming down. The research he had on his own farm showed there was no difference between 60,000 plants per acre and 220,000 plants per acre. And when you're buying Roundup Ready seed that's pretty darn expensive, that makes a huge difference in what you can earn per acre off your no-till beans. uh, Early on, he used to spend the whole winter on the road talking at meetings. Great speaker, always has got something practical to tell people, is funny. And uh, he always kind of picks on me at the no-till conferences. But the lesson he hasn't learned is I would always have the last word from the microphone.
1: You've done that part very well. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been covering this, how many years would that be? 40, Forty-five. Forty-some, yeah. yeah. So you've been doing this a long time, watching a, a practice that was in its relative infancy, the the day that you got involved in it. What's it like for you to look back on these people, and how was the people side of, of the relationship that they had with you and willingness to share that has made all this possible?
2: well it, it's really great. There's neat, neat people in, in the no-till uh, neighborhood, and uh, they've been more than willing to share ideas with each other. Many of these people got started early when no-till was not a popular thing to do. They took a lot of flack from their neighbors. Reminds me of the story is uh, early on must have been nineteen seventy three or so. We had a speaker. At one of our meetings, uh, from North Carolina, and he was—he had a farm on one of the state's mental health center properties, and so he no tilled a field out in front of the uh, hospital. And a farmer in the area came along, saw this just huge mess, mm-hmm. farm and uglies, what Chevron used to call it in those days. And uh, asked him what he's doing. And he said, Well, I'm no tilling corner soybeans into this crop residue. And it looked right. And the farmer went up to the hospital and asked to talk to the director uh, who ran the whole thing. And he got, in, he got in to see him and he said, You better go down there and check. There's one of your patients down there doing this crazy thing, what he calls no till. And he said, You're just wasting your money. Well, as it turned out, the director kind of knew what was going on and didn't say too much to him. Three months later, the farmer went back to the director and said, you know, that guy, that crazy guy down there no-tilling, apparently he knew what he was doing because that crop's looking pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, a couple other things that come up, but we talked about these 25, and there's also, we, we highlighted North uh, America on this, but there's, a, there's some people from worldwide that come into this, and one of them goes back to the first guy we talked about, Dwayne Beck, uh, early on, I think it was in St. Louis, must have been the second or fourth year. We had a guy talk, Frankie Dykstra from Brazil, and he's been no-tilling for 35 years down there, got 50% corn, 50% soybeans, does some oats and wheat in the winter, and uh, done a great job. Well, he got up and he talked about how they were making huge profits off land that was valued at $80 per acre. Now, U.S. people, $80 per acre, they don't think it's too great. But then Dwayne Beck got up afterwards and said, I hope you really listen to that guy because if you go out in western South Dakota, and this was probably 1974, 1975, he says, you can rent land out there for $80 and you can make the same profits that this Frankie Dykstra is making down in Brazil. So I remember that one too.
1: Take us back to the the early 70s right now and, and what agriculture was like. And I've heard some of these stories from friends of yours, but how crazy, how out of the box, how maverick this no-till practice was and how it was regarded at the the coffee shops.
2: Well, it wasn't thought of very good. I've talked to a number of no-tillers who said they'd walk into the coffee shop and they wouldn't sit at the main table because they were just going to get laughed and harassed about no-tilling. They would sit in the back sometime. And then some people just said, I just quit going to the coffee shops in the morning because I didn't like... being hassled all the time. And I have had a couple people over the years say, it. you know, when you first started no-till farmer, I I thought maybe you'd thrown your career down the tubes.
1: But uh, your father was one of those people too, wasn't he? Yeah.
2: I I had a job in Chicago. I was editor of a magazine that went to beef cattle and swine producers. And he thought I was nuts to quit this job. And uh, I, I'd gone home in between and the family had gone home and I had left with him a couple of uh, brochures on uh, how Paraquat worked, which was, uh, is what really made no-till work in those days. And, uh, I, I was back there a couple of weeks later and he asked me where he could buy some Paraquat. And we ended up no-tilling part of our farm. We, uh, my dad was getting up in years and we rented the land out, but, uh, it was the no-tilled uh, corn for a number of years. And, uh, it's kind of neat to see what's happened. Uh, a few of the herbicides that are still popular today were popular in the early 70s. Atrazine was uh, one. Paraquat was around. Now Roundup came in later and made a huge difference. But now, you know, even today we're having problems with dicamba and Roundup-ready resistant beans to it in some areas like Arkansas and Missouri. And, uh, but dicamba was around in the 70s. Vel- there was a company called called that put out it was called Banville in those days, but it was basically a dicamba product. So some of the things that we think back to the 70s are still being used today in no-till. And I had an editor tell me about in the middle 1980s, she said to me, well, Frank, your time has really come. It looks like no-till is going to catch on for sure.
1: It's got to be very satisfying to, to see the risk that you and your your readership had taken and to where it is today.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, we went from like three, three 3.3 million acres in 1972, and there, nobody really knows today what we got, but it's got to be at least 100 million acres in the U.S. of no-tilled crops. And the other thing is you can no-till practically any crop. I mean, there's research out there on just about every, any crop, and uh, one of the ones I really remember out of Kentucky and North Carolina is uh, there were people who were no-tilling Tobacco And one of the benefits of no-tilling tobacco, and actually this also makes a case for tomatoes and pumpkins at Steve Groff rates, because when they had conventionally tillage and they'd get a rainstorm, they'd get mud on the bottom of those tobacco plants and pumpkins, and it dramatically reduced the value of those crops, particularly with tobacco, because those leaves were useless. Well, by no-tilling, they didn't have this soil erosion damage, on the no-till tobacco plants, and the, the crop was worth many more dollars per acre.
1: Give us a couple examples, and I know you've you've been hearing about this from from your subscribers and conference attendees on on how no-till changed their lives and the in the their farm practices. And
2: yeah, um, they had more time to do things. Now some people took that time and they expanded it, and they no-tilled more acres, we rented more land, but then we had other people who spent more time with their families, all of a sudden had time to go to their kids' baseball games in the spring, and uh, there's a number of no-tillers around who uh, had huge acreages, and weren't making it with minimum tillage or conventional tillage, and went to no-till, and, uh, have cut back on their acreages because they're making more money with farming less acreage, and they don't have the huge machinery investment that they had. I mean, machinery manufacturers don't want to hear this, but there are some farmers out there that will tell you they haven't bought anything new in 15 years because they don't need it. They they got an 80-horsepower tractor. They got an eight-row no-till planter, maybe a drill and a sprayer and combine. That's all they need.
1: You weren't necessarily real popular with the machinery people as you started blaring this from the, the mountaintops on no till in the early days, were you? No, they they didn't like the idea. They didn't catch
2: on. And it, it's interesting how you look at this because early on and and it's gonna be part of this book too, because early on there were all kinds of farm shop modifications to planters and drills because people didn't like what they were getting from the manufacturers. Now what happened in those days, there were a couple manufacturers. Shortline really got a start in those days. Kinsey was a popular planter. Uh, Some others were. John Deere didn't have anything for a while. I think what happened is the John Deere people couldn't stand the fact that they'd go see farms that were no-tilled, and they had a lot of John Deere equipment, but then they had a different color planter. Maybe it was a Kinsey blue or a case red or some shortline yellow or something like that. So they finally came out with adding adding a few attachments to their planters, but the planters were never really developed for no-till. But somebody said to me once, well, Deer's got a no-till planter now, so I guess no-till's legitimate. <laughs> so there are some really wild things that were done in uh, farm shops. Uh, they'll be in the book. There's pictures of guys taking old combines and uh, converting them into six and eight row no-till planters just by putting row row attachments on the front.
1: Any anything else that you want to cover while we're here today?
2: What What's interesting in an old till conference? Um, this was a 25th year, and there's there's six people who've been to all 25 of those conferences, and there's there are a few other people that missed the first one because they didn't know, didn't know about it. I, I can tell you a couple scary stories early on. There was a there was a farmer from Bay City, Michigan, in that area. went to the first no-till conference in indianapolis he had never no-tilled an acre in his life and he called me up about a month after the conference all excited and he said guess what and I said what he says I'm having an auction next week I'm selling off all my tillage equipment I am going 100% no-till on my thousand acres man that was scary to me I mean that's not the way to start but he made it work, and he, he got so enthused at our conference that he made it work. The other thing that came up is we started this uh, no-till conference in 73, and it was also the year that Monsanto started some no-till conferences. In 93? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, 93. And uh, across the country, they had four or five of these conferences, and I had a couple of people say, man, this wasn't a good time for you to start this. Monsanto's going to bury you. And uh, it didn't work out that way. Monsanto did these. They were good conferences. And I I give Monsanto credit because they were a sponsor of ours on those early conferences from day one. Just because they were running conferences didn't mean they wouldn't support us. But what really has worked for us, because a couple years later, one of our speakers who had talked at the no-till conference uh, that Monsanto put on said, you need to do what Monsanto does. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, they get all the speakers to go to St. Louis, and they talk and they, they kind of talk the same message that here's how no-till works, what it needs to do. And he said, one of the problems that your national no-tillage conference is people vary. One guy says this worked and the next speaker says that same idea doesn't work for me. And I said to him, no, we're not going to do that. I want everybody to get up there and tell what they believe and what works for them. And attendees can draw their own uh, solutions. I said, one of the things that I believe in, whether it's a magazine, a newsletter or a conference is we're going to give you the ingredients, but you got to write your own recipe.
1: Mm-hmm. And by taking that approach, by not having one agenda, you really brought out the free flow of sharing and information and in the knowledge seeking that's necessary to move a practice like this forward.
2: Yeah, and there's, a, there's another great story about the early conference because we, I think we charged $165. And I had people come up to me and say, what are you doing? Are you nuts? We can go to an extension meeting on no-till for either nothing or we pay 12 bucks that includes lunch. And I said to him right from the start, we're going to give you something nobody else has done before. And I said, if you come, if you paid $165 and you come and you don't think you got anything out of it, I'll give your money back. And we've done this for all 25 years. And, and my wife, who used to do the financial work, used to cringe once in a while because there'd be two or three people that would ask for their money back. To me, that was the best thing going. I liked it when we gave money back to a couple people because the word spread. And they, they knew it was it was for real. But that first year in Indianapolis, there was a woman named Alice Musser that worked for us. And in uh, July of 72, I sent her to Indianapolis and we were gonna get a hotel to run this first conference. And she said to me, well, how many attendees are we gonna get? And I said, ah, we get really lucky, maybe we'll have 250 or 300. So we booked some rooms in a hotel. And as it turned out, that very first year, we had 814 attendees. Wow. And uh, we had people spread a, over a couple of hotels. And the problem we had in the hotel was the meeting room wasn't big enough. And we we went back to the hotel and said, we got 600. And they said, that's it. We can't take any more. That's it. And then we went back and said, well, we need more room. What are we going to do? And they got up to 18. They finally said to us, look, you got a couple meals. We can't feed them all in one room. But if you feed... 500 in this room and 300 in this other room which is up the elevator 20 stories we can make it work and then those people can come down and join the others for the noon thing that's what we did we ended up 814 attendees we had outgrown that hotel before we'd ever set foot in it
1: <laughs> great story
2: and even uh you look at strip till being important today we, we had a speaker at that very first uh, one in uh, 1993 cliff roberts from Kentland, indiana who was a uh, big booster of strip-till so we've talked about strip-till for all 25 years
0: thanks to frank and mike lesseter for today's discussion and thanks to our sponsor new leaf symbiotics for helping to make possible the no-till farmer influencers and innovators podcast series thanks for tuning in you can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. That's no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessermedia.com or call me at 262 2413 And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at no-tillfarmer no-tillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank, Mike, and our entire staff here at No Till I'm Lead Content Editor Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.